With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. We take a deep dive into a particular compliance or compliance-related topic, going into the weeds in a very geeky way. In this episode, Matt and I take a look at a proposed regulatory reform by the House Financial Services Committee, the so-called Financial Choice 2.0 Act. We take a look at what it might do to Dodd-Frank, the specific ideas that Matt thinks are very bad ideas, and what the compliance officer should consider when thinking about such congressional reform. The episode comes in at uh, just over 20 minutes. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and along with my colleague and good friend Matt Kelly, founder of Radical Compliance, we are back for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, where we take a deep dive into a compliance or compliance-related topic and just see how far down into the weeds we can go. And Matt has written a couple of very weedy, into the weeds, geeking out posts that we're going to try and go over today. And the first one he posted uh, on Monday, May 1st, no doubt in honor of May Day or Loyalty Day for all you Trumpites out there, House GOP preps regulatory reform acts. So Matt, uh, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? And uh, where into the weeds can we take this puppy? You know, we could take what Congress is planning to do this week, the a markup, which is another fancy word of saying a congressional review of the Financial Choice 2.0 Act. That is the legislation at hand. We could take this in any number of ways. Um, this is the first substantive effort that Congress is undertaking to revise at least some of the Dodd-Frank Act. It may or may not get rolled up into any number of financial re regulatory reform bills that are floating around. Uh, there's previous legislation in prior Congresses that could be revived and come back again. There's other bills floating around right now that may or may not see the light of day. But on Tuesday, May 2nd, that is when the House Financial Services Committee will start its markup of the Financial Choice 2.0 Act, um, modeled after the Financial Choice 1.0 Act that the committee approved last year, which went nowhere. And that's a very possible outcome again this time around. Um, a little more possible that it might get further, but uh, this is still gonna be a long and arduous road, and who knows what might wind up in any sort of final legislation here. It's uh, This is Congress whole lot of weird things can happen along the way. So, um, you know, I'll uh, I'll take Jeb Henserling uh, from the great state of Texas, sure. uh, congressional representative from my hometown. So, uh, you know, I suppose I get him on this one. But you seem to think there's uh, at least a few pretty bad ideas in this uh, round of uh, proposed changes. Could you maybe articulate those, Matt? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, I will say for corporate ethics and compliance officers outside of financial services, there will be a whole lot in this bill that might fly over your head because a lot of it is specifically about how to oversee the banking sector. Now, there's bad stuff in there, too. And if you are within the financial services sector, you might want to look at that a whole lot. But we could do a whole separate podcast on just the banking regulatory reform. But aside from that, for everyone at all in any public company, there are a couple of different ideas that I think are not well-placed. For example, a big part of what Jeb Hensarling, the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, a big part of what he wants to do really is to cripple the SEC's ability to make rules and to undermine its authority and shift a whole lot of that either back to direct congressional oversight uh, or basically make the the SEC cost benefit its way out of existence. You know, they won't be able to propose anything anywhere without such an exhaustive cost benefit survey that either the rule will not get proposed or this cost benefit analysis will force them to conclude this isn't a good idea because they won't ever be able to account for potential benefits compared to different costs imposed on different parties. And we could certainly, you know, geek out on different sections of it. But broadly speaking, if we have a weaker SEC, that is not good for anyone. Um, I certainly sympathize with people who don't like a strong and bullying SEC, but to have a thoughtful and wise and judicious SEC that can't get anything done because it's statutory, you know, it's been so neutered, that doesn't do you any good either. And everybody should remember back to the summer of 2008, you want to see what an SEC who can't get anything done, what it looks like? That's what it looked like back then. And that really directly led to a lot of the financial crisis because these regulators were not empowered under the law to be able to do anything. And that is what I think a lot of what Jeb Henschling is trying to do. Um, number two, he is looking to revoke the Chevron deference doctrine, which uh, for the law students out there, you probably remember this from your corporate or regulatory law class. For all the accountants who are listening who don't know what that is, it says that when there is litigation in court, over some regulatory rule, uh, the judge must accept how the agency interpreted the statute to come up with a rule. It must defer to how the regulator uh, interpreted the rule as the default, unless you know there's really some glaring negligence or omissions on the regulator's part. That goes out the window with this act, which would basically say a judge would be able to conduct its, his or her own analysis of a statute and decide what that really meant for the regulator. And the regulator's expertise, the regulator's past stances, that all counts for nothing. It goes out in the wash. That's uncertainty. That leads to, I don't know, forum shopping. You know, if you want a just last week, President Trump was complaining about the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out in California, saying that they go off the range all the time. Uh, you could certainly go for a liberal judge to interpret some statute liberally and sue in San Francisco. If you wanted somewhere conservative, you could go to the Fourth Circuit down in Virginia. You could go all over the place, and judges would be able to decide for themselves what uh, the regulator should be doing, not what the regulator decides the regulator should be doing. Uncertainty, not good for compliance officers. Uh, there are two or three more geeky, kind of more internal control and financial reporting things that are in this bill. 
Uh, the exemption for SOX 404B, which is the internal the audit of internal control over financial reporting, it would greatly expand the number of companies that don't have to do that. If you don't have to do this, you generally are more at uh, odds for a financial restatement or fraud or other financial reporting difficulties because you don't know if your financial controls are actually good. And this doesn't help anybody except CFOs who don't want to pay high audit fees. It certainly does not help investors who might be more exposed to higher fraud or restatement risk uh, if we let that go through. And lastly, my pet cause, uh, we're really going to get into the weeds. This would exempt many more filers from the requirement that they submit financial data to the SEC tagged in XBRL, and that is the financial data language that lets software analyze financial data much more effectively. Uh, this would exempt a large chunk of smaller companies from having to do this, which, by the way, they've already had to do for more than five years. And this would go out the window. This might win the contest of the dumbest idea in the legislation because the compliance costs for this are extremely small compared to the benefits which are greater coverage from analysts. Um, that certainly it helps the SEC, which uses XBRL tagged data a lot for analytics. Uh, it saves you money on your audit uh, costs because you can find comparable data from other filers much more quickly. I was talking with the corporate controller just the other day who did a task in five minutes, thanks to XBRL tagged data. He was doing some research that normally would have taken him and two of his external auditors more than a day to figure out what they wanted to do to comply with a certain rather arcane accounting standard. Now, the CFO is paying those two external auditors a couple of hundred bucks per hour per person all day long to figure out how are we going to implement this rule. With XBRL data, he went into a special database. He found out in about five minutes, he's like, here's what we want to do. Here's how my peers implement it. Here it is, external auditors, and you can't say no, and you know it, so let's move on. And the auditors let them move on. It's that kind of stuff that is arcane and nerdy, but only in this big abstract thing that we're talking about, a financial regulatory reform. When you get down into the actual details and look at it case by case, there's a lot that makes a lot of sense for what we do, what we do. And I, I fear that a lot of the, those very good ideas um, might go out with the bathwater here. So the four things that you articulated there, Matt, the uh, uh, Chevron def deference repeal, uh, rule, clipping the uh, rulemaking authority of the um, SEC, uh, uh, broadening the exemption category of SOX 404, and then the uh, XBRL, um, would you have uh, – it seems to me that really the um, SOX 404 directly uh, speaks to access to capital, perhaps the rulemaking authority – you, you have written and talked about perhaps changes uh, to the SEC or Dodd-Frank specifically around access to capital. Do you see this as an effort to broaden uh, that uh, regulatory rollback in any way? Well, I, I see a lot of this legislation as like, uh, I guess, almost quaint ideas pre-financial crisis or ignoring the lessons learned from the financial crisis that um, – all regulation is bad because, by definition, it must drive up costs for the company, which makes it tougher to get capital, so we shouldn't do it. Now, that's not true. 
Um, I would give one simple example, again, with XBRL. If you enhance a financial analyst's ability to study data, they can study the data of more companies more efficiently. So they can pay more attention to companies. So all these small companies who Jeb Henserling allegedly wants to help by cutting their costs, their big problem isn't that their costs for XBRL are choking them. Their big problem is they go public and analysts don't care about them because they're too small. So they are very thinly traded. Nobody's paying attention to them, and they have difficulty accessing capital because of that, unless they stick with the private markets. Um, XBRL would help address that because it would be easier for analysts to be able to pay more attention to people. Now, that's a distinction that's going to be lost on many lawmakers in Congress who are hung up on whatever ideologies they are pledging to support. Uh, and I think that is very much the case with Jeb Henserling here. Um, again, with SOX 404B, the um, idea that 404B inhibits companies from IPOs, I, I suppose in some circumstances that's true, but in many other circumstances, the bigger problem is companies don't need to go public to raise a lot of capital. They can do that in private equity because there's more money than we know what to do with. And the real problem is more about how do you stay public one quarter after another, after another, after another. Um, and I also think it is interesting that we are debating all of this legislation this week when the new chairman of the SEC, Jay Clayton, he is going to be confirmed by the Senate any day now, possibly even Tom, as you and I talk, he'll be on the job by the end of the week and welcome to Washington, Mr. Clayton. The very first thing you're going to deal with is legislation that's looking to take your agency and straddle it down while they put a buzzsaw to its neck. I mean, that's. I would love to hear what Jay Clayton thinks of a lot of these ideas, which I think are not necessarily what an SEC chairman would like to see, because it's going to dilute his agency's power. So the, um, I guess the the one I really would like to focus on is the SOX 404B, and you're feeling yeah. that it's not um, the financial requirements or, or the internal controls and financial reporting that's stopping these companies from uh, raising money. It's really um, that they can't get the message of their IPOs, their products and services out into a wider public market. Is is that a fair statement? Well, I think the best way to describe it was um, several months ago, the SEC did hold a hearing about why companies are not going public more quickly. And specifically, this was Jay Clayton's point in his Senate confirmation hearing. He wanted to have small companies go public earlier in their life cycle so that when they have that big growth cycle and suddenly revenues are gushing in and everybody loves the stock and it's going sky high, that, that all of that that happens is out in the public markets and investors can get a piece of that action. That's not what happens today. What happens is that venture capitalists and private equity, they pour money into a startup before it goes to the IPO. And that's why you see a company like Uber uh, go from a valuation of like $100 million to a billion to $2 zillion in the next round. You know, And suddenly, it's all of that big run-up happens in the private market. So they were debating this at this SEC meeting. And really, several presenters, and these are very thoughtful, detailed presentations, got to the point it's, you know, why are p companies not having IPOs? Because they don't need to. 
why, why would you do that? You know, it's, it's more like you're going to get a better valuation from private equity. You're at the end of this, you're not going to wind up with a bunch of stock that may or may not be liquid that you can sell to retire. You're going to wind up with cash. Now, if I'm a startup entrepreneur, I like cash. So why wouldn't I want to just sell out and retire when I'm 38? And, you know, Travis Kalanick at Uber could certainly do that if he wanted. And, you know, all of these lifetime or life cycle events in a company that would historically have happened before in the public market, they don't need to happen in the public markets anymore. It's not going to matter if we repeal 404B. Uh, because really, most startup companies that are going to enjoy a lot of growth, they're going to get it in the private equity markets anyways, and there'll be a bigger, you know, there's a bigger upside for them to do it there. So I just see this as kind of a pointless idea if you're really thinking about how to increase IPOs in the U.S. They've been falling for 20 years. This isn't going to solve that problem. It will make it easier for companies to go public, sure, but the only people who really make a lot of money for that are investment bankers. And the law firms who take companies public, which would include Sullivan and Cromwell, which was until very recently the employer of Jay Clayton. And you know, it's really this is a solution in search of a problem. You know, there, there are maybe other problems with the IPO market, but this doesn't address it. Um, but it's not all bad because you found a few things that uh, were at least uh, uh, colorably positive uh, or moving yeah. towards neutral. Could you ar- articulate those for us? Well, you know, some of it is uh, around bringing more uniformity to enforcement actions that multiple regulators might take against a company. And I've heard those stories before, especially in the banking sector where – you know, you might be a bank in the Northeast and one Fed Reserve Bank regulates you. You acquire a small branch in Georgia and suddenly the Federal Reserve Bank in Atlanta wants to regulate you as well. And you have to go through the paces twice. That's fine. That's unnecessary. It shouldn't. You know, if the Fed in Atlanta and the Fed in New York can't keep their act together, if they can't even request the same sorts of data in the same sorts of format, that deserves some attention. Um, I am open to the idea that maybe we could let registration statements for all companies go through this, um, I guess, a confidential review before they file their registration statement. That is another idea in the bill. You know, frankly, I think if you are that unconfident in your registration statement that you want a private peek from the SEC, you really should you know, talk to your CFO about if he or she is worth a salary because you know, you'd think that you'd have these things in order the first time around. But whatever, it's not the end of the world if people have confidential registration statements to test the water. There are some other ideas that you know, people can be open to. We could talk about uh, changing the structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Is it one director or is it a bipartisan commission? That's another idea that's been floated around. Um, so this is not all bad, but taken together, it is clear that congressional Republicans, and it is specifically that group, because they've passed some other legislation as well, they're looking to neuter the ability of regulators to take action, especially in crisis moments where to take action, they would need to declare an emergency and then all restrictions go out the window and we make up new rules willy-nilly, which is what happened in July, August, September 2008. Nobody had any clue what was going on um, back then. It didn't occur to people that we should have a mechanism to be aware of risks. We do have that now. That's what Dodd-Frank has done. It has not been a perfect vehicle. 
but it is better to have an imperfect vehicle than no vehicle. And that is what a lot of this legislation is driving at generally. It's neutering regulators' ability to respond and be an effective partner in governing capital markets. Well, couldn't we see this really as a, uh, not really an opening offer, but uh, the start of a bill that will be uh, negotiated amongst legislatures, legislators in the uh, House, and then, of course, when it moves over to the Senate, that uh, will create an entire new legislative process? It, it is. Yeah, that's a, a, an important point that we always need to remember is that um, Mike Crapo, who is chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, he will, I am certain, you know, come forward with his own legislative plans. There may be other Senate committees. Um, for example, if you are in commodities, the Senate Agriculture Committee is going to want to weigh in on how to reform the Commodities Future Trading Commission. You know, they, there's a lot of different committees that will pick at this idea of Dodd-Frank reform. Um, and really, a lot of it is about attacking banking regulators. So like I said before, for a lot of corporate compliance officers listening, you don't have to pay attention to a lot of this, but you do have to pay attention to some of it closely. And there are some other regulatory proposals out there that have already passed the House um, that would be very alarming to any corporate compliance officer. Um, but we'll see where this goes. This isn't really going to see the light of day until after we get tax reform done, at least. So that's into the fall. Um, it is entirely possible we might not see any of this. And it is an open question whether Senate Democrats, you know, where are they going to push back on these things? Um, it is important to remember that when we had the Jobs Act pass in 2012, SOX 404B exemptions, for example, the Democrats were in favor of that because the Democrat in charge was Chuck Schumer from New York, and he was looking to benefit his Wall Street banker donors. And you might see something like that happen again. So you can't just draw a partisan line straight down the middle and say all Democrats must be opposed to this, all Republicans in favor. It's a little bit more mixed than that. But we are going to see a lot unfold over a course of many months. This is the first opening shot, and we'll see where it goes. Well, Matt, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time, but this has been a fascinating exploration, and I really look forward to you following this uh, closely again and keeping us uh, updated to the twists and turns of the uh, whatever number Congress this is. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help us get the word out about this most unique podcast where we take a deep dive into a compliance or compliance-related topic each week. Also, if you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com or you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.